Wow, praise the Lord. Well, good, mo- good morning, church. Um, today's uh, scripture reading is from the book of Genesis. Genesis 19, verses 15 to 22. May we all stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters, who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out, set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape in the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city near is near enough to flee to. It is a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a little one, and my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I, will, I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. Okay, back to the question then. How sold out for Christ are you? How sold out for Christ are you? Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? And think about it. Most Christians look at those sayings like that in the scriptures and say, well, that's kind of the ideal. I mean, that's, that's really for missionaries. You know, really being sold out like that. That's for missionaries. Or, or maybe some pastors can be like that. But, but that's not for most of us. Jesus couldn't possibly have meant that every Christian should, should be sold out in that way. Could he? And what happens if we choose not to be so radical? There's really no cost to it, is there? We still get to go to heaven and live eternally, don't we? I mean, we'll still get our mansion and and we still get to play harps and float around on clouds and walk on golden streets. And how cool is that? So, really no big cost. As long as I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, isn't that all that there really is that I have to do? Those are the common attitudes of most Christians. When Christians read about Jesus telling the young, rich young ruler that he had to sell everything and give it to the poor, 
We kind of make excuses as to why that applied only to him, but it really doesn't apply to us, not to everyone. The same reaction happens when we read of the Christians in Acts who who sold their fields and their properties to help the poor believers there in Jerusalem. We give the reasons why that was okay for Barnabas, but I don't think every Christian is called to live like that. But if we as believers in Jesus Christ, if we find it difficult to be sold out for Jesus Christ, then how do we expect unbelievers to think that God is somehow fair in how he treats them in their lives? One of the top questions asked of Christians has to do with how a loving God could allow tough times to come into a person's life when they're a good person, but they lose their job, or they lose their health, they, they lose a family member. Along with that comes the questions of the fairness of God. Who could demand that, that we would have to give up everything in order to follow Him? What kind of a God demands those kinds of things? But all of that points to two facts. First, that Christians fail to understand the seriousness of the gospel and the task of the church. To be sold out to Jesus Christ? Why? Because the gospel is a serious thing. And the responsibility of us as Christians in the church is great. Second, Unbelievers fail to recognize the eternal danger that they face. And if we don't act as if we are serious about our faith, then why would they see it necessary? Charles Peace was a uh, a murderer and a notorious thief over in England. And as he was being escorted to uh, his death sentence to be hung, an uh, Anglican priest was leading the way. And the priest was reading from the uh, consolations of religion concerning the dangers of hell. And he was reading it in sort of a monotone, you know, this is what the Bible says about hell type of thing. And Peace, as he's walking along behind, listening to this guy, taps him on the shoulder and he says, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from the eternal fire of hell. Sold out. The world doesn't believe because we don't believe. We began by saying, singing this morning, I believe, but do we? I think Enrique was encouraging us 
to really understand what it means to be a Christian, to know that God is alive and that He's active in this world. And so this morning, I want us to combat these two views. First, by ourselves becoming more passionate about our faith. And then second, by understanding why believers are failing to believe. And as our theme from this passage states, it is fallen human nature to challenge the commands of God as unfair while the fires of hell are threatening at any moment to consume them. In other words, the, the unbeliever talks about God's unfairness when all that God is doing is to save their lives, to keep them from hell. And yet, they call that being unfair. Well, as we study this interaction between the two angels and Lot this morning, we gain insights into God's handling of sin and of the sinner's reaction to that. The first lesson that we recognize is that God has commissioned all people to turn and be saved. He's commissioned all people to turn from their sin and to be saved. Over a century ago, the message of the gospel changed. The message used to be, repent and believe. About 150 years ago, it changed to confess and believe. Now, you may not think that that's a very big difference, but in actuality, it is a huge difference. It is a tremendous difference. These things are miles apart. Confession, someone has said, is good for the soul. Well, that might be, but repentance is what God commands us as unbelievers to do. To turn and be saved. Paul, speaking to the people of Athens at the Areopagus in uh, Acts 17, challenged them with these words. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Repent, because if you don't, you'll face the judge. Repentance. What is it? Repentance is a full recognition of the horrendousness of sin and a crying out to God to change your heart, to change your desires, to change your attitude. We see this call to turn and be saved in this story of Lot. But we also see it in our own lives. So notice that God has commanded all people to leave the world. To leave the world. And by that I don't mean to leave by death, and I'm not saying to leave by some spaceship either. When the Lord calls us to leave the world, He means that we are to leave our love for the world. A love 
for the pleasures of the world, a love for the systems of this world. And that's what we read in our text in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away by the punishment of this city. A well-known saying of, of Jesus asked what profit comes from gaining the wealth and the pleasures of this world, but losing your soul. Well, let's ask ourselves a few questions about that then. Which would you rather have? A picture of a check for a million dollars, or actually have a million dollars in cash? Or which would you rather have, a conversation with someone about your dream job, or actually to be working at your dream job? Or what about a picture of a beautiful, gorgeous woman, or a handsome man, or would you rather have that as your husband or wife? The summer I graduated from high school, I uh, traveled with some other Christians around the United States, and we went on the cheap, so we were staying at either family or friends' houses that we had set up, and if we didn't do that, then we had to camp outside. And we were in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at probably the nicest place that we got to stay. They had a swimming pool, it was a really nice house, and, and everything. And in the room where I was with uh, one of my friends, we were uh, where we were to sleep, there was a full-sized cardboard cutout of a woman in a bikini. So, as a, uh, a joke, um, you know, I put my arm around this woman, and he takes a picture of me, and we're sending postcards back saying, you know, that I had met uh, Monica Harm, uh, you know, and had begun to date her, Right? And so and we got back, we had the picture and everything, and it looked lifelike. But it wasn't real. A cardboard figure. Well, the stuff in this world is a cardboard figure. Oh, it looks real enough, but it has no reality to it. When God tells us to leave the world and to leave the pleasures of this world, He does so not to take things away from us, but to help us to realize that the pleasures of this life are but for a season. That they have little value. They are here today and they are gone tomorrow. But what He offers to us is eternity. So let's leave the shadows, let's leave the, the pictures, and let's pursue what will last. And yet, notice that most people respond with a desire to linger in the world. Consider what it meant for Lot to get up and leave Sodom. That had been his home for many years now. He had begun living originally outside of Sodom in tents, 
But now he has moved into a house in the city, uh, probably a fairly nice house in the city, because he is an elder of the city. That's why he's sitting in the gates that we saw last uh, time. He is a leader within Sodom, a wealthy individual. He is there a judge of the people. For him to flee means that he has to leave behind all of that. He's got to leave behind the nice house that he has. He has to leave behind all of his property and all of his belongings. He has to leave behind these guys that were supposed to become his sons-in-law and leave behind his wife's family that's from Sodom. Flee with nothing but the clothes on his back. And that's why we read in verse 16, but he lingered. But he lingered. He had to count the cost. Did what the angels warned him about. Did, did it really seem as if it was going to happen? Would God literally destroy everything? Or could Lot have time to save at least some of his belongings We can ask the same questions of ourselves, can't we? You who are single, does God really mean what he says when he says not to date and marry someone who is not a Christian? For those that are involved with pornography, is lust really as bad as committing adultery? For those of you who have a a temper, is anger really a form of murder? In the end... Too many people, like Judas, will trade eternal life for a few pieces of silver. We linger. Uh, We hang around our sin. Uh, We hope to be able to keep one foot in the world while still having one foot in heaven. But the Bible tells us that that chasm is far too wide. Anyone who tries to straddle the fence will fall off into the abyss. Stop playing with fire. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why God has commanded all people to flee from the world. He's commissioned us to repent, to turn, and to be saved, and to flee. Five times in this text, we are told that Lot was told by the angels to flee from the city. You know, some people are willing to, in a sense, turn from their sins, that is, at least confess it to God, maybe even tell their friends that they are done with this sin area of their lives, but they drag their feet when it comes to actually getting away from it. A smoker can't really quit, can they, if they keep a pack of cigarettes in their desk or in their pocket? An alcoholic won't become dry if they have a spare bottle hidden away in a closet someplace. The drug addict can only last as long as he stays away from the friends who are dealing those drugs. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Did you hear that? Jesus didn't say, you, you know, you shouldn't do this. You, you, you shouldn't hold on to those things. You, you, you really, I would suggest that you give, uh, you know, these things away and, and, and that you stop doing those things. Jesus said, you have to hate the one and love the other. You know, lots of people do wrong things and they feel guilty about doing it. But they end up falling back into it because they have not yet come to hate it. Notice that God has commanded all people then to let go of materialism, to let go of mammon, to let go of the things of this life. When I say materialism, I'm talking about anything in this life that will not be taken into eternity. Our homes or apartments, our clothing, our families, our friends, our jobs, none of those things are eternal. They are all temporary. We have to be willing to set them aside for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't ask everyone to sell all that they have and give to the poor, but he did ask the one man who loved his wealth more than he loved Jesus Christ. And that is what he says to us. So to Lot and his family, the angels had brought them out, had dragged them literally out of the city, and then warned them in verse 17. Escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Do you believe that the decisions that you make in this life are actually life and death issues? Most people don't think so. The majority of people have a hard time believing in hell, much less believing that God would actually send them to some place of eternal torment. I mean, they really don't do that bad of stuff. Why would God do that? Few people think that they're actually bad enough to deserve that kind of a punishment. What would you have done had you been Lot and his family, his wife, his daughters? I mean, think about this for a moment. Two strangers come to the city of Sodom. Lot, as an elder, is sitting in the city gate there, greeting the people as they come in. He sees these two strangers. He invites them home. They are still strangers. He invites them home, serves them dinner. That night, there's a riot around his house as the people of the city want him to send them out so that they can have sexual relations with them. And that's kind of uh, crazy that that happened. But the next morning, the strangers get up, they eat breakfast with you, and then they say to you, you got to get up, you got to leave this city. Who are these guys? And what are they talking about? And then they actually grab you by the hands and they drag you out of the city. And then they tell you, you got to run for your lives off into the hills. 
Now, what are you thinking? Are these guys thieves? Are they sending us away so they can take our property or do whatever? Are they really from God? They're sending us into the wild woods where there are snakes, there are bears, there are mountain lions. So what would you do? Would you let go of everything and heed their warning and flee and run off to the mountains? Or would you break free from these crazy radicals and return back to the safety of your home? Well, notice that most people respond with a desire to latch on to their property. We know the decision that Lot made. He was only willing to go halfway. He wanted to kind of cut the deck. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too, right? That's a normal way to handle religion, isn't it? Uh, to, to kind of play the cards just right, you know? Well, if there is a God, let me do some good religious things so that, you know, I'm not on his bad side, but am I really going to sell out? Am I really going to give all for the sake of Jesus Christ? At the same time, they're not willing to say no completely to sin or to materialism. They react like Lot does here in verse 18. And Lot said to them, oh, oh no, uh, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life by dragging me out of my house. Uh, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. You see what he's done here, right? He's done some calculations in his brain. He's looked at the odds of survival for himself and for his possessions. He's hedged his bets that God probably would not really destroy everything if it is from God. And he wants to only go halfway because if God doesn't destroy the city, then he can get back to his property very quickly. But if God does destroy the city, at least he'd be safe. He's only going part way. He is not serious in his commitment. He's waiting to see, does God really mean what he says? G.K. Chesterton, uh, who is a famed English author, once wrote, and I quote, Men do not differ much about what things they call evil. They differ greatly about what evils they call excusable. Excusable. I heard a talk show host the other day say that white-collar crime is better than the other kinds of crime because it doesn't hurt anyone physically. In other words, it's excusable because nobody gets killed with white-collar crime. Yet the 70-year-old individual whose life savings disappears doesn't consider white crime any less than the individual who gets shot in a stick-up. See, when we fail to see the value of things eternal, we're willing to trade them for the things of this world We trade the wonder and the joy of passionately pursuing God's glory by latching on to what we consider essentials in this life. It's hard to get people to understand John Piper's motto that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that's 
just a reworking of Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Stop latching on to the things of this life. God provides for the just and the unjust and the rain, and the sun, and, and the provisions that we have. Let's start investing our time, our treasure, and our talents in that which brings joy and satisfaction for eternity, not just for the moment. So in the end, this passage then, we need to notice that God has compassion on all people for the sake of the elect. God did not spare Lot and his family because of Lot and his family. We saw last time that Lot was a just, a good man, but not a righteous man. God spared Lot and he spared the small city of Zoar for the sake of Abraham, not for the sake of Lot. Lot here tried to negotiate with God something that you can't really do because what do you have to offer to God that God needs? Absolutely nothing. God acts for the sake of his eternal purpose for his people. He does not act because you can somehow negotiate with him what you think he should do for you. That's why Peter wrote that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repentance. We've shown in the past that that statement, that any should perish, does not mean any person, but any of those whom God has elected to save. So I want you to notice in this passage that most people respond with a desire to lessen the sin problem. We look at the passage, and it soon becomes apparent that Lot somehow believes that God likes him specially. I mean, he did drag him out, right, with those angels. He did send them and and haul him out. And so he begins to negotiate with the angel. And he says, well, you spared me, obviously, for some reason, so do me another favor. We look at it in verse 20. It says, behold, the city is near enough to flee to. It's just a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not just a little one? And my life would be saved. This is just a little sinful city, God. Hardly worth your paying any attention to. Let me go there. What Lot really wants is his creaturely comforts. Here's a man who had grown accustomed to the city life. He doesn't want to return to living outdoors in a tent. There are lions and tigers and bears, oh my, as Dorothy sang. Lot's argument, however, is irrational. God has spared him and his whole family from the fires that would soon consume the cities of the plain. And Lot's worried about a few wild animals? Reason would say, If God can control nature in such a way that it destroys all of these cities on the plains, he certainly could send 
his angel, to protect him from a couple wild animals. But Lot's not thinking rationally, is he? And neither are most of us in this planet. He doesn't see the sin of these cities as being bad anymore. Even though the mob nearly broke his door down, threatened to kill him and rape his whole family, Lot rationalizes it was just a one-time event. The city isn't really that bad. Sin and sinners no longer offended Lot for him to flee. He forgot that God had once destroyed the whole world with a flood in the days of Noah. The Tower of Babel had become a forgotten memory. Lot had begun to think of God as a patsy, a softy, a God of love, not a God of wrath. But notice that God has commanded all heaven towards leniency temporarily. In other words, God is saying, yeah, at this moment I'm not destroying you. But I have a time limit. And that's what he says to Lot. I have a time limit. Both the Bible and history contain hundreds of examples of God's wrath being poured out on the people of this world. Noah's flood, Pharaoh's plagues, 185,000 Assyrian armies destroyed, David and Goliath, Esther's victory over Haman, the plague in London, the Chicago fire, the bombs over Hiroshima, all to name just a few. Some are divine acts. Others are huge natural catastrophes. And some are of human making. But still, because the majority of people's lives go on, even though these things are happening over there someplace, they forget that God pours out his wrath. But look at verse 21. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. God has a timetable. I will act, and I will act powerfully, and I will destroy the cities of this plain. For Abraham's sake, and therefore for Lot's, because of Abraham, I will spare that city. But I have a timetable, and you had better hurry. God has placed limits on what, when, and where those angels can bring destruction. But don't mistake God's temporary mercy for the unwillingness to act. The fires will fall. Sodom and Gomorrah and the other two cities will be wiped off the face of the earth. The day of judgment is coming. Call it what you will, Armageddon, the apocalypse, or any other name. It is around the corner. Don't minimize sin. Don't mistake God's leniency for the moment for forgetfulness. God is showing us mercy today. For this moment, use the time to turn in repentance, to give your all 
call on Jesus for forgiveness, for mercy. Let today be the day of salvation for you, because tomorrow will be the day of judgment. And for you who are Christians, don't cling to the things of this world. Cling to the things that are eternal. For the things of this world are passing, and they will be destroyed on that final day. Sell out for Jesus Christ. And so, in conclusion, what does it profit to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, speak to us today. We have a Savior, and what a Savior He is. And He opens up the door and says, Come, all who will, and I'll give you rest. Why do we linger so long in this world? Why do we hang on to these things that will pass? Why do we love the world and the things of it, the pleasures that are but for a season? Oh, Father God, come. Be merciful to us. Come to us with power today. Fill our hearts with a love for you. And let the Savior transform our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.